The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. 1773, December, and the tensions were getting really high between the colonists and the, and the British. If you'll recall, if you remember your American history, about three and a half years earlier, there was the Boston Massacre where some of the Redcoats opened fire against some of the citizens of Boston. And the tensions were increasingly getting higher and higher. And one of the main issues was this issue of the colonists being taxed. They were being taxed on some of the staples of their lives, and it was all coming to kind of a a crossroads at one particular item that they were being taxed on. It was tea. The British were taxing them on the tea, and they were trying to make it so that the colonists could only get their tea from the British Empire, and they were being taxed on it. And so the colonists actually began smuggling tea from other parts of the world into the colonies, and they were spending as much as twice what they could have for the English tea, but they were boycotting the English tea to buy the smuggled tea. Because the issue, it wasn't they didn't like the way that the British did tea. I mean, they were British subjects. It wasn't that it was, it was too expensive, they were paying more. It wasn't that, hey, we don't want to be taxed. That actually wasn't the issue. The issue was that they were being taxed, and they had no say in the matter whatsoever. They had no representative in parliament. They had no one advocating for them. They had no part of the discussion. They were just off on their own with a, on a, with a group making decisions about them, and they could just easily be oppressed. And they said taxation without representation, that is tyranny. And so they boycotted this tea. Well, it all came to a head on December 16th, 1773, when three ships came in to the Boston Harbor. And the colonists refused to unload it. And the British, the, um, British authorities said, you need to unload this, the, all the imports that are coming in, and you need to do it by midnight, or we will send troops in there to unload it. And last time, there was, and very recently, there was an altercation with troops in Boston, but the colonists refused. And there was a revolutionary politician by the name of Sam Adams that gathered a group of people together for a rally. And they rally, he rallied together and he was rallying them. We are not going to put up with this anymore. We will not unload that. And he was getting them all excited about this. He had his group called the Sons of Liberty together in this meeting hall. And as they're meeting through the afternoon at 5 p.m., a message came that the governor of Massachusetts had capitulated. And he sent an order to the entire colony saying, we will unload those ships and we will pay the tax. At that point, Sam Adams steps to the, to the podium And he says this this memorable phrase that's been remembered through American history. He said, this meeting can do no more to save the country. And he dismissed the meeting. And he and his sons of liberty stayed there and continued to meet. The rest of the crowds left. And a little bit later, while Sam Adams and the sons of liberty are meeting, a couple hundred men go marching through the streets of Boston and they're dressed as Native American warriors. And they're marching toward the harbor. And what happened next is a piece of American legend. It is one of the most incredible moments in history. You know what happens next. You can see this picture here. They get on board the ships. 
And crowds are looking at the commotion. Thousands of people are lining on the harbors to see this incredible act of defiance against tyranny. They get on board the ships and they get all of these crates of tea and they start dumping all of the tea, all of the crates into the harbor. And it's now known, of course, as the Boston Tea Party. In fact, you can go to Boston and in a museum you can actually see one of the crates that has been preserved most incredible artifacts in American history. And they dump them off, they go back into the crowds, and the crowds let them sift through so the British could never figure out any of the identities of any of the people who boarded the ship. Even decades after the Revolutionary War, it was a tight-guarded secret. Now the incredible thing about this is this was a surgical maneuver This wasn't like after the meeting, they got all fired up and they got all mad and they made this decision and they marched down with torches and they broke things on the ships and they lit it on fire. No, no, this was a surgical maneuver. They went on board, they touched nothing else, they broke nothing else, they didn't even break locks on the hatches, they didn't hurt anybody, they just walked on board, they were after just the tea and they threw it overboard. To the point that historians have said, okay, this had to be pre-planned. And the most obvious character that would have planned it would have been Sam Adams. In fact, the British were watching him. They had people constantly watching Samuel Adams. But he had an airtight alibi, didn't he? He was meeting with the Sons of Liberty. And so historians have looked back, and they've they've gone back to that phrase where he said, this meeting can do no more to save the country. And they believe that was his phrase saying, it's go time. And that they had planned for these, so they had an airtight alibi, and they had these volunteers pre-set up to go do the Boston Tea Party and make this incredible act of defiance in the face of tyranny. What were they so mad at? They weren't mad. There's nothing wrong with the tea. They weren't even really mad that they were being taxed. They were mad that they had no say in the matter. You know, there's actually a tyrant in our culture. It's not a person. But there is a tyrant that has been ruling in our culture for decades. In fact, this tyrant has been ruling probably for generations. And it's this oppressive concept in our culture that holds us back. And it's doctrines of this tyrant, this tyrannical doctrines have slipped into our thinking and it's become normal. Its regime is normal. And so many of us in our culture just follow right after what this tyrant tells us to do. The tyrant's name is materialism. Last week we talked a little bit about what materialism looks like and this week we're going to talk about the henchmen that, the, that this tyrant materialism has all around in our society and how we can fortify ourselves against this tyrant named materialism and how we can stand and make, join a resistance against normal and revolt against this tyrant. We're looking in the book of, it's called Ecclesiastes. It's not one of the more well-known books in the Bible, but it is extremely profound and powerful. Um, If you want to turn there in your Bibles, um, if you have a Bible, if not, it'll be up here on the screens as well. We're looking at Ecclesiastes. We're going to start in verse 6. So if you turn to verse 6, keep your place there. I just want to read you a couple verses before. I want to read you Ecclesiastes 5.10 where Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, introduces what he's talking about. Let me read you out of chapter 5. He says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Let me read that one more time. Listen to this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Here's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, he calls it vanity, and what he means by vanity is actually a very rich word in the original Hebrew. It doesn't mean just simply showy and that kind of vanity. What it actually is talking about, the Hebrew word, is a word that can mean vapor, like a mist or like smoke. It's like you could pursue after. You can imagine like a billow of smoke and you're following after it, trying to capture it. Could you capture it? No, of course not. You try and reach out and grab it, but it slips through your fingers. What Solomon is saying, he's not saying money is vanity. He's saying the love of money is vanity. In other words, he goes on further. He says, man, if your income is what you're going to need to be satisfied, you will never be satisfied. It's like trying to chase after a smoke that slips through your fingers. This love of money we're calling materialism. Okay, let's define that term a little bit more. What do we mean by this idea of materialism, the love of money? Okay, because it's easy for us to say, look, I, you know, I like stuff, but I'm not materialistic. It's easy for us, and it's hard to admit that, I mean, no one wants to admit that they're greedy or materialistic. No one wants to admit that. It's easy to point out that in someone else, but Let's just consider this for a second. Let's have an honest moment. What is the love of money? What is he talking about? What is signs of materialism? Well, maybe it's something that I'm looking for to make me happy. Man, if I just had that, then I'd be happy. Man, well, you know what? I should upgrade to that, or I should get this, or we should get a bigger this, or a nicer that, or it'd be nice if I had a new this. It's when I'm looking for more money, more stuff to make me happy. Or maybe it's a little more, maybe I'm looking for stuff as what's going to satisfy me. Man, I'm just down, I'm going through a hard time. You know, be a pick-me-up is, you know, just to, to get a brand new, to get a nice, you know, kind of my instinct is I'm feeling down, I might just go out and, and see what's out there. Maybe I'll buy some things or get this or get that. It's looking for my satisfaction in more stuff or maybe even more. Maybe it's finding my self-esteem and my identity in what I make and what I, what I have, it's I, I feel better about myself because I'm wearing this. Man, I, I feel like I've made it because I drive this, or I live here, or because I have this. Or man, I can't show up with this. I have to have the new, or they have the new thing. I, I'm, I, I've got to keep up with them, so now I've got to get the new. And it's finding my identity in the things, the more stuff and the more money. And he says, here's the thing. He's just being very honest. He's saying, here's how this works. And this is coming from a guy, Solomon, who's extraordinarily wealthy, one of the wealthiest figures in history. He's saying, trust me. It's chasing after mist. You'll be constantly looking for satisfaction. And the moment you have it, you'll be happy for two seconds. Then you'll be like, oh, but look at that. You'll be on to the next and on to the next and on to the next and on to the next. He's like, it will not satisfy. He's saying, man, it's just empty. Materialism, needing that stuff to be happy. Feeling like my life only amounts to, only, I feel like only good about myself if I have this. And here's what our hypothesis is, is that's actually an epidemic in our culture. It's actually a tyrant in our culture, flooding through our, cult, our culture, and has been ruling for generations. Let me give you one example. Uh, you may be aware that they are building a large mall off of I-75 just south of Miramar. Did you all hear about this? You hear about the new mall they're pulling, building? Um, let me just kind of give you an idea about this mall. Let me give you some statistics about this new mall that's going in, okay? It's over 3 million square feet of retail, 
about 2 million square feet of entertainment and 2,000 hotel rooms. It will be the largest mall in the entire country that will be right down here just a couple miles away. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard, we actually already have some large malls in this area. If you go a couple miles that way, there's a little place called Sawgrass Mall. Has anyone heard of Sawgrass Mall? Okay. Sawgrass is the seventh largest mall in the country. In fact, it is the largest one-story mall in the entire country. So we weren't satisfied with having the seventh largest mall. We need the seventh and the largest mall just with it. You could actually hit them both in one day if you wanted to. Okay, make a weekend of it, all right? Let me give you a little bit more. It's not just the mall. It's actually the entertainment that it's going to include at this mall. Okay, for example, at this mall, there will be a theme park. There will be the world's largest, the world's largest indoor ski slope measuring 180,000 square feet. It's 800 feet long and 16 stories high. Now, I, for years I've been saying that is the one thing we are missing. <laughs> Just like, how much longer do we have to live down here without an indoor ski slope? <laughs> Finally, we get our indoor ski slope plus an ice climbing wall. I don't even know what that is. An ice climbing wall, a water park, a giant observation wheel, a submarine lake. Awesome. A submarine lake with marine life such as sharks and manta rays, an art deco village with performance halls and a 3,000 seat movie theater, an ice skating rink, a museum, a bowling, and just because that's not enough, also mini golf. Okay, just making sure we check that off the list as well. Okay, here's the thing. I'm not saying that mall is bad. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying either. You know what? Some people are like, man, it's going to do great things for economy, a lot of new jobs. Other people are like, we don't need a new mall. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad. All I want to do is draw your attention to one feature. Do you know what the name of this mall is? American Dream Miami. Is that an unbelievable statement about our culture? This is it. An indoor ski slope. It's the pinnacle of what we've been dreaming for. This is it. We have it in Miami, the American dream, the largest mall in the history of our country. We have it. It is the dream. All I'm saying, I don't know, go to the mall, work at the mall. Okay, that's fine. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, just understand, there's a dynamic in our culture where the dream of this is, now I've made it. Now I'm successful. Now I can feel good about myself. Now I'm happy. Now I'm satisfied because I've got more stuff, more things, more money. And Solomon is saying it is empty, please. He's saying, it's like trying to be satisfied with more stuff is chasing after vapor. The moment you think you have it, you look down and you're still not satisfied. Now let's see what else he says. Jump to chapter 6, verse 1. Look what he says. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. Okay, he says, there's a great evil. And this is what he says, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them, and this is vanity. It is a grievous evil. He says, man, the worst thing, he says, one of the worst things in the world is you look at someone. I mean, like, for example, look at the super rich, the super wealthy. 
He says, you look at the super wealthy. They've got, I mean, they've got so much stuff. Have you ever been tempted to say that? You look at the super wealthy and you're like, man, you've got so much stuff. How are you ever having a bad day? You ever tempted to say, man, if I had the money you had, I'd just wake up laughing every day. How could you ever say you've got a bad, a bad day? You've got so much stuff. And he's saying the saddest thing is sometimes the people who've got the most stuff, they've got so much stuff, the wealth, they don't need anything. They've got anything their heart desires, and yet they don't, they don't know how to enjoy it. They never enjoy it. They, they live their life, and they never have the capacity to enjoy it because they're always after more, and they're always looking around at the next thing, and they always want more. And it's so tempting for us to say, I know, man, that is... <laughs> That's just frustrating to watch. Man, if I had that money, if I had the money that that person has, man, I tell you what, I, I, would, I would live, first of all, not that opulently. I, I mean, I'd be generous to needy people. In fact, God, I hope you're listening because I'd be very generous, okay? <laughs> I'd be generous to needy people. I'd use it all wisely. I, I mean, I wouldn't live like that. I wouldn't need all that stuff. That stuff doesn't buy you happiness. We look at this Solomon, we're like, Solomon, you tell him, you tell the super rich about that. You know what's unbelievably uh, difficult for us to hear and unbelievably fascinating? Is statisticians say the top 1% wealthiest in the world, I mean, the upper crust, you're like, okay, tell me, what does it take to crack the top 1%? Not top 10. I want to know, what is the top 1% wealthiest in the world? The envy of the world. To crack the 1% wealthiest, you have to make $35,000 a year or more. That's the top 1% wealthiest. That's what you have to make to crack the 1% creme de la creme, the ultra-rich What that means is if you're sitting in this room, you are in the top percentages of wealthiest in the world. So who is Solomon talking about? The other 7 billion people in the world are saying all that about us. Can you believe what they have? They can get clean water out of about a dozen different sources on their property. See, it's so easy for us to look at the next guy, whatever that super wealthy is in my mind. It's easy for, man, I can't believe how they, I wouldn't do that if I was that. And Solomon's saying, man, the problem is the ultra-rich, they don't even realize what they have. See, what we say is we say to each other when we get into our house, we say things like, man, there's nothing to eat around here. <laughs> what do we really mean by that? That means the the delicacies that are like one day old in a refrigerator, they're just not exactly what I want. You know, we say, oh, well, I, I've got this coming up. I've got to have something to wear. What are we actually saying? We're not actually saying I literally have no clothing. I'm saying even though I probably cannot fit any more clothing in my closet, none of that is acceptable for my standard of what I need to wear going to that event. Now, should this just, am I saying this so that we feel guilty? No, no, it's not to feel guilty. It's just to be honest in saying that verse is talking about us. He's saying one of the greatest tragedies in the world is that those who have everything they need, they don't even realize it and they don't even enjoy it and, and we're constantly looking for more. That is talking about our entire culture. That is us. It's not Forbes' top 10 list. It's us. 
And the problem is he's warning us, don't miss it because you're the love of money saying, well, if I had that, then I'd be happy. If I had that, then I'd be happy. If I had that, then I'd be happy. It's saying just stop and realize what we have. In fact, look what he says. Jump down to verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Listen, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He tells us how this works. He says, we wake up and we're creatures of our appetite. Whatever we're hungry for, that's what we toil for all day. I'm hungry for acceptance. I'm hungry for happiness. I'm hungry for peace. My life is too stressful. I'm hungry for significance. I'm hungry for popularity. I'm hungry for whatever it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm a creature of my appetite. And he's saying what happens when it comes to the love of money is there are things that cause our appetite to just wander around. Whoa, what's that over there? You know what? I want that now. I wasn't hungry for this at all until I looked at the menu and then I smelled it and then I tasted it. Now I'm hungry for this. He's saying the way it works with the love of money is he says all these appetites, can, you're introduced to all these appetites and it can create a hunger inside of us. And here's what's so difficult about our culture is there's a tyrant named materialism and he has henchmen all around us. And the goal of these henchmen is to create desires in us. And if we're not careful, we just let our, our appetites wander around to however these henchmen direct them. Oh, yeah, I do want that. Yes, I do want that. Yes, I could use that. And it is all around in our culture. What's the name of materialism's henchmen? It's commercialism. It's that our culture is so saturated with marketing and advertising and so sophisticated with it that we've got to realize how it's operating. Now, before I go any further, I want you to please hear me. I'm not saying that marketing is bad. I'm not saying that advertising is bad. No, the problem is when it's not bad at all. In fact, many of you work in advertising and marketing, and what I would tell you is do, use all that you've got to work in that category. Do the best you can. Be as strategic as you can. That's not bad. That's to the glory of God. That's not the problem. It's not marketing and advertising. The problem is when we're not wise to how it's influencing our lives and our families. The problem is not the tea. It's not the tea, and it's not even that we're being taxed for the tea. The problem is that we don't have any say over how we're being taxed. The problem is when I just indiscriminately let market, marketing and advertising and commercialism choose where my appetites are rather than saying, no, I am going to have a say of this in my life and in my family's life. Do you, do you realize how much our culture is built around marketing and advertising? It's unbelievable. In fact, U.S. companies spend billions more every year in market research than the National Cancer Institute spends on cancer research. Let me give you an idea of some of these things that marketing, um, it's, some of these things are incredible um, down to the very details. I mean, we know the basics. I mean, we know, okay, they're, they're using sex appeal to try and get my attention. They're using nostalgia. They're showing a little kid. It looks like my little kid, and now I'm crying watching this commercial. Okay, they use these things. They use all these things that we know that they're using, but do you know the level of strategy that they're using down to the store layout? There was a, a study that someone did in an appliance section of a store where they just subtly pumped in the smell of apple pie. 
and their sales in refrigerators and ovens went up 23%. They have experimented with ambient sounds and music, and, that, and they say certain ambient sounds just statistically make us spend more, so they know how to pump in certain kinds of sounds. Do you know store layouts are not laid out for your convenience? They're laid out to get you to spend more. In fact, some stores, I'm not going to mention Ikea particularly, but some stores... <laughs> are laid out so that you get lost. You spend a week there and your sustenance are the meatballs that they sell. I mean, you wonder why they have little bedrooms because some people sleep there for a month just trying to find their way out. Okay, down to the layout. Do you know clerks in stores are trained? They know statistically at high-end retailers, the more snooty the clerk is, At high-end retailers, the more you'll spend. And they say, psychologically, why is that? It's worse customer service. It's because psychologically, they're creating an in-crowd mentality. And so they know if they're like that, you'll spend more. Others, they know that they've trained sales clerks that if they mimic how your posture and your gestures, people will warm up to you and they'll they'll follow what you say more. You know, down to this, you've heard of, um, Uh, you've seen probably there's a type of marketing called anthropomorphic marketing, and it's where you take something that is not human and you give it human characteristics. And it draws us to that. And there's some obvious examples. For example, you you know these guys. We love these guys, okay? And you probably remember this guy. You remember this, this sheep? I like that sheep, okay? You know, whatever he's selling, I want to be a part of that because he's, he's, he's a nice little sheep. Okay, that's obvious, but this, let me give you one example of how detailed and strategic marketing and advertising is because they take this anthropomorphic idea and they go even deeper into even logos and font selection. Okay, so I want you to look at this logo right here. This logo for, for Heineken, I want you to look at the E's. They're tilted a little bit. And marketing experts say they have intentionally made their ease look like the profile of a smiley face. So it draws you in and instinctively, subconsciously, it looks more appealing to you. Okay, here's the point. Uh, Marketing spends so much in our culture, so much strategy. Again, that's great. If you're in marketing, maybe you just jotted down some ideas. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) That's not bad. What's bad is when I don't realize the influence it's having in my life. You know, there's a whole other category of marketing. Social media. That's how people market themselves. We never put the real us on social media. We put the cleaned up version of us. I mean, have any of you woken up in the morning and you just crawl out of bed and you've got, you know, stuff in your teeth and you've got like crease marks on your face and your hair's going, you're like, all right, it's a good time for a selfie, you know? Take that selfie, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a monster. But that's the real me. Upload. Does anyone do that? No, you get everything right, your hair, you get in your car, you take 14 selfies until you get the perfect one. See, social media, it's not the real us, it's marketing us. We show just the happy moments and when we're on vacation and when we got a promotion and when we have something clever to say or funny to say or meaningful to say, we show the real us. And so what psychologists have now been discovering is that our tendency on social media is that it can bring us more towards anxiety and even more importantly, more involvement in social media can tend to make us feel more inadequate, because we're constantly seeing this face, this fake, cleaned-up version 
of other people and we feel like we can't measure up. Is social media bad? No, absolutely not. It's great. It's a great tool. We do social media as a church. It's great. It's only foolish when I don't have a say in how it's being, in the role it's taking in my life. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, maybe there's, there's a couple ways to respond. Maybe the first, if we're going to make a revolt against materialism, is we've got to fortify ourselves. Maybe we've got to say, you know what, I, wait a minute. I'm going to take control of what the influence uh, of marketing and commercialism has on myself and my family. I'm not just going to indiscriminately let it come in and make me desire things I never desired. Let's just start at the mailbox. Do you realize that we... we allow commercialism to become a recreation and a hobby. We let um, companies telling us what we desire become a pastime. So you go to your mailbox, you're like, oh, here's that catalog that I love to look through. And I take it, and I have a few minutes, I'm waiting on something, and I flip through. It's got all the gear that I want, or it's got things that I should have in my house. I remember when I looked in that catalog, and I realized in one of these home magazines what a closet should really look like. I mean, I spend like three and a half minutes a week in that closet, but I mean, when I see, I mean, this guy's got, like, I mean, he's got like a fountain in his closet, okay? Like he's got, he's got like a balcony in his closet. That's what my closet is supposed to look like, all right? And we, we look at things and we can just indiscriminately say, oh, cool, let me look through this catalog. Do you realize what we're doing? Are catalogs evil? No. But it might be foolish just to let it tell me what I should hunger for, what I should have an appetite for. You know, you can discontinue catalogs. Or you can just throw them in the recycle bin. Or how about, man, what do you want to do? Let's go hang out at the mall. Just recreation. I don't need to buy anything. I don't need anything. But let me just go to the mall. And let me have millions and millions of dollars worth of strategic marketing constantly. Sensory overload. All all around me tell me what I want that I already don't have. Is going to the mall wrong? No. No. But it can be foolish just to not realize how our culture is built to draw out appetites. What about leaving the TV on indiscriminately in the home? Do you realize it is an actual statistic, statistical fact that with every passing year, more time is given to, t- to commercials? I mean, that's just a fact. Every passing year, more time commercials, more time commercials. You wonder if at some point we'll be watching more commercials than content. And so maybe just when we get up in the morning, we just turn it on, the TV's running in the background, it's telling my whole family what we don't have and we should want. The kids come home from school and the TV's on. We're not even watching, but these commercials, hour after hour after hour after hour, week after week, year after year, pumping into our homes without us saying, no, no, I'm going to have a say in what the, what the appetites that are being drawn out of our home are. Maybe for some of us it's to fortify, maybe the way we stand up against this tyrant is we fortify our homes and say, okay, now I'm going to be a little bit more intentional. I'm not going to spend hours scrolling through social media at a time just indiscriminately allowing it to make me feel inadequate and telling me all the things that I don't have that I need to have. Maybe for some of us fortify, some of us it's a rally. We need to hold a rally and here's what I mean by that. Some of us need to regroup with our family and maybe some of you that's the Financial Peace University that we've been talking about. You know, that's starting in just uh, a couple days and the spaces are filling up. And maybe you say, you know what, I want to just take this moment to practically get my whole family on the same page. My spouse and I are going to get involved. I, I just want to make sure that we ha- get all the practical tools to go forward in, in a way with biblical financial teaching, just drenched in biblical teaching so that we're going forward on the same page. Maybe for some of you, man, get signed up today. Do that today. 
maybe it's not fortify, maybe it's rallying, but maybe for some it's attack back. Attack back against materialism. How do you uh, wage an attack? It's in one word, thankfulness. He says, better is the sight of the eyes. Maybe for us today, it's stopping and saying, man, do I have a culture of thankfulness in my family? Do I have that in my life? When was the last time I sat down and I just, I just spent time thanking God for all of the incredible things he's placed in my life? Maybe I train my kids to do that as they're falling asleep at night. I say, so what are a couple things you're thankful for? I train them to fall asleep with thankfulness in their hearts and their minds. Maybe I set aside a good portion daily, regularly, where I say, I am going to discipline myself. I'm going to stop and thank God in my own life. And we're going to stop as a family. When we pray before a meal, it's not just a rote prayer that we say every single day. No, we're going to stop and thank God for what we have. Maybe it's discussions I'm going to start with my kids. Maybe I'm going to take my teenagers on a mission trip and so we can help just get perspective on what we have and how blessed we are in, in the society that we get to live in. And get the opportunity to serve and, and understand the, the incredible privilege it is to serve and to build relationships with those that we work with. Maybe for us it's to fight back. Maybe it's to have this scripture pounded into the culture of our family. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. You might be hearing, you might be saying, look man, I, you understand, I hear all those statistics you gave, but I'm actually in really financial struggle right now. It's tight. I hear you and all that's fine, but I am struggling. I am stressed. But you know what you always have? There's something you always have. There's a story about um, several centuries ago, a bishop, and he's spending some time with God. He walks outside of his village and he's walking through the forest and he's praying and thinking and, and he sees there's a shack and he says, man, that, I don't, that thing must be old. And he hears noises coming from the shack in the woods. He realizes, oh my goodness, there's someone living in there. So he's kind of tentatively approaching it. He's like, man, I don't even know how that thing's standing. And he hears actually the voices that he hears coming out of that. It's happy. It's elated. It's actually praising God. And he looks through the hole that's there, the window, and he's kind of like back away, but he's looking through, and he sees this little old woman completely impoverished, and she's found this stale crust of bread that she must have found in the village and taken it back to her house. And here's what she said. He heard her say, all this and Jesus too. Do you know no matter what you have, no matter what the rest of your life will look like, if you have Jesus, you have someone who's walking through it with you. And if you have Jesus, you have an eternity waiting for you. Could you possibly put a price on that? No matter what we're going through right now, we have reason to say, God, I don't need anything else. I have Jesus. Thank you. And that vapor just fades away. You might be here and you might be saying, man, I know this is just so hard. Well, I want to leave you with this phrase. This meeting we're having together can do no more to save your family. You've got to leave here and take action. Will you fortify your family? Will you have a rally? Will you attack back? It's not what we said in here. It's what you do when you leave this meeting. 
And some of you are here and you're saying, man, I hear all that about Jesus, but I, don't, I wish I could know for sure that I'd have eternity. I'm not sure. If I died today, I don't know what would happen. But you can know for sure today. Do you realize salvation is a free gift? Jesus died for you and he took your punishment on himself. He says, your sins are washed away, paid for on the cross. As I rose again from the dead, in the same way you are living permanently, in forgiveness, permanently reconciled. He holds nothing else against you. Your sin as far as the east is from the west. You just have to, in faith, say, yes, Jesus died for me. I accept that gift. So that is the free gift of immeasurable value that's being offered to you today. Do you want to accept that? You can right there in your seat right now. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, I want you to just right there in your seat, pray this prayer between you and God. Say, God, thank you. Thank you for wanting to forgive me and wanting to save me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I accept that. Thank you that I am permanently saved and forgiven. I will follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, for the first time, I want to ask you to do something very specific this morning. I want to ask you to consider, if you prayed that prayer just then, I want to ask you to consider being baptized today. Jesus commanded it from the beginning. He said, look, if you're putting your faith in Jesus, then I'm going to leave you with this ancient ritual where you're going to demonstrate that by being baptized. And all throughout history, people have heard the message and say, you know what? I, I am in, I, that's what I've been waiting for, I'm forgiven and I want to be baptized and to display that, display that my old life I'm, is buried and I'm walking in a brand new life. You could get baptized today. Or maybe you said, you know what, I prayed that prayer weeks ago or months ago or years ago and today is my day, even though you weren't planning on being baptized, I want to challenge you, be baptized today. Take, that, take advantage of being walking in obedience to Jesus. I want you to see this uh, quick video because there's some stories in here of people who have been baptized and I think some of these stories are going to connect with you. Check this out. I decided to get baptized because I was ready to have a commitment, a, a relationship with Christ. And I was ready to take it a step further than I ever have in my entire life. And if I were to get baptized anywhere, I would want it to be with Les Pines, with home, with people that I love and that I'm familiar with. Um, I feel for the first time in my life that... I can actually stand up and say, I am saved. I am not the person I used to be. I heard my name calls and I heard the music playing and all of a sudden I look out and Justin's holding his hand out there waiting for me. And he walked me up the steps and into the tub and then I declared my faith and I was dunked under the water. And I came back up and I heard the cheering and it, it, the world just seemed brighter all of a sudden and I, I just felt like this overwhelming amount of happiness and joy throughout my entire body and that's exactly when I knew that I'd made the right choice. Why am I getting baptized? It's, it's to show God that I truly accept His Son in my heart and that um, I'm washed clean of my sins. Some of you might have seen that and said, you know what, gosh, that's me. 
Church, we've got an incredible celebration that we're going to celebrate together. I want to encourage you to stay after, after we close and go cheer on those who are doing this ancient symbol. But some of you, man, today is your day. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.